Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, Lord, as we come now to this time of worship, Lord, we come under the authority of your word. And we ask, O oh Lord, just as we have been singing praises to you this morning, Lord, now you would speak to us, speak to our hearts, open our minds to hear the truth of your word and transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Come now, Lord Jesus, I pray. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. We'll actually be looking back at chapter 1 just a little bit this morning. Uh, 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Now, I wanted to point out to you, you have your handout. Uh, now, I want you, when we get into this, I don't want you to be scared when it's almost time to go and we're just on point 1. We're only going to get to point one on our outline today. I've all, I know that. I've planned for it. So we're going to make it to point one, uh, the major point there, number one today. And we'll work through that point, And then next week, we will work through two and three. But we'll make it through point one today because there's some background here that we need to talk about before we get into the, the rest of what Paul is talking about this morning. So, and also I wanted to point out on the back of your study sheet, uh, there is disciples discussion questions back there. Of course, there's week one for this week's message and week two for next week's message. So keep up with your handout. But uh, just we want to encourage discipleship uh, both in the family and outside of the family and so this helps you this is my effort my uh, contribution to you to help you in discipleship so you're sitting around for family devotions sometime this week uh, you can talk about today's message by asking these questions just considering these questions and so hopefully as we talk about this passage this morning. This will bring up some of these questions to mind, and you can talk about them in your family devotions. Also, if you're discipling another Christian, you may talk to them about these questions. So I hope those will help you out in your own discipleship as we go through this. All right, this morning we are looking at Galatians chapter 2, uh, and we are asking that question, how can we trust, how can we know that we can trust Paul's gospel, Paul's writings, that's a question that he is answering to the Galatians, and so this is a question that we need to understand and ask today and get the answer from the text. Now, there are many today in secular and liberal camps who believe that Christianity, the Christianity that we know, was not Jesus's Christianity. They believe that today's Christianity, the way that it has developed, is Paul's Christianity. It came from the writings of Paul, the imagination of Paul. And so we had back in 1970, maybe some of you have heard of these, the Jesus Seminars. Has anyone heard of the Jesus Seminars? They sound exciting, don't they? They sound like something that we would be interested in. I mean, seminars about Jesus. But their, their title is kind of deceiving 
The Jesus Seminars were born in 1970 by Dr. Robert Funk. Dr. Robert Funk was wanting to discover the true historic Jesus, if you will. Now his assumption was that the real historic Jesus was lost in history and myth, and, and so that we needed to get back to discovering the true historic Jesus. The Jesus that is pre presented in the New Testament, that's not the real Jesus, he assumed. And so we need to study some documents to get back to the true historic Jesus. All of what Christianity has come to think about Jesus, well, that was of the imagination of Paul and his writings since he wrote the, the most of the New Testament. And so his effort and the scholars who followed him, their effort was to get back to this historic Jesus, the true Jesus of history, not the Jesus of the New Testament. And so he invited this board of scholars, and they, they came in and they began to consider the Gospels. They, they excluded the rest of the New Testament, and they just focused on the four Gospels, Plus one, they added in there the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas. Now, understand that the Gospel of Thomas was what's called a Gnostic Gospel. It was actually written about the 4th century A.D., long after the other Gospels were written. The other Gospels, the, other four, the four Gospels that we have preserved for us in Scripture, they were written by actual apostles or those who were, walked with the apostles. In the case of Mark and Luke, they walked with apostles and, and wrote under the apostles. But this Gospel of Thomas, it's a Gnostic Gospel that was been dated to be, have been written somewhere around the 4th century A.D. And so much later... And it does not, it, it, you look at it, you read it, and you can quickly see that it does not proclaim the Jesus of the New Testament. Oh, there's some, some phrases in there. It's really the sayings of Jesus is what it's called, the Gospel of Thomas. It's, it portrays the sayings, if you will, of Jesus. But many of the sayings in there, some of them kind of sound like the other Gospels and some of the Jesus' sayings in the other Gospels, but a lot of them are completely opposite of and not supported by any New Testament witness. So in the Jesus seminars, they took the four Gospels plus the Gospel of Thomas, and they began to go through there line by line, and these scholars, these liberal scholars, would vote on, all right, does this sound like a, a saying of Jesus? Like they would know what would sound like a saying of Jesus. But they began to vote on, does this sound like Jesus? And, and they, would, they had these little beads that they would give in, and one color meant absolutely sounds like Jesus. Another color would mean, well, they all kind of, sort of. Another color, uh, maybe, but not really. And then a, a fourth color that was, no, nah, no, nah, that wasn't Jesus. And, and come to, after they worked through all of this, they, they discovered, if you will, they determined in their own minds that most of the Gospels in the Bible were just not Jesus at all. In fact, most of the sayings that they confirmed or affirmed in their own mind that were the sayings of Jesus came from this 4th century writing, the Gospel of Thomas, that 
absolutely doesn't portray any truth of New Testament Scripture. But you can see, this is the mindset of, of liberal scholarship. That the Bible that we have, the New Testament that we have, that is not the true gospel of Jesus Christ, but it is from the imagination, primarily the ma imagination of Paul. And then those Christians who even followed after him. Well, that's kind of what's going on here in Galatians. These false teachers, you remember, Paul had gone in and he had developed these churches. He had gone and planted these churches in the region of Galatia. And as he left these churches, in come these false teachers. Satan sends in his false teachers to skew the gospel, to pervert the gospel that Paul had preached in Galatia and they were saying well Paul's gospel is not the true gospel because he's not a true apostle we have the true gospel and so they came in saying Paul's gospel was not biblical if you will it was not the true right gospel and so our objective today our question from this text is that how can we trust, how can we know that the gospel that Paul presents for us in the book of Galatians and throughout the rest of his writings, in particular, how can we trust that this is the divine gospel, the gospel that is from God? It's not from Paul's imagination, but this is the gospel from God. That's what Paul has in in mind here. He wants to, to argue his case to show the Galatians why they can trust that his gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not from his imagination, but it, this is the gospel that he received under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, carrying the full authority of God. This is God's gospel. And so last week, as we began to look at this, this passage, and we began up there in, in verse 11, you remember I said, verse 11 and 12, that's his thesis statement for what follows uh, the rest of the way through chapter 1 down through chapter 2, verse 14. That's his thesis statement. So let me just state the thesis statement again. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel, the good news, that I preached to you or was preached by me is not man's gospel. It's not man's gospel. In other words, Paul is saying it's not a gospel. It's not a message that was conceived in my mind. It's not a, a message from my own imagination. It's not man's gospel for, here's the reason, because I did not receive it from any man. Nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It came to Paul straight from Jesus himself. And last week we looked at Paul's conversion. We saw Paul's conversion. And there we saw that the divine origin of the gospel is corroborated by the radical transformation of a converted life. Paul's conversion is one evidence, one proof that the, the gospel that he has preached is God's gospel. 
He had this radical transformation. He was once an enemy of the church, actually on the road to go persecute the church and drag Christians off to jail, off to to be tried in court, and yet on his way to, to persecute the church, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and immediately had a complete life change. Absolutely total life change. He was going that direction. He met Jesus, and he's headed this direction. He is now proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ instead of trying to destroy it. How how can you explain that? Other than he must have had an experience with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and it changed his life. Now today, I want us to see, as we continue through his argument, we see, beginning today, and we'll look, finish it up next week, that the divine origin of the gospel is confirmed by God's community, the church. The divine origins of the gospel, of Paul's gospel, the gospel that he proclaimed to the Galatians and proclaims to us in Scripture, it was confirmed by God's community, it was confirmed by the church. In other words, Paul, he didn't just go off on his own and do his own thing, but he actually brought what he was, he was teaching to the church and said, hey, look, is this right? You, you be the judge. Am I teaching right? And so he comes to the church for that confirmation. So this week and next week, we're going to see three ways that the divine origins of Paul's gospel was confirmed by God's community, the church. Three ways the divine origins of Paul's gospel was confirmed by God's community, the church. But before we get into that, we need to go back just a step because last week we we looked at his conversion, but we kind of just had to brush through those last verses there. But those last verses about Paul's life immediately after his conversion, they're going to weigh into the argument that he is about to make about him going, taking the gospel that he was proclaiming to the church. So I want to go back there and give you a little historical background and and help you kind of connect what Paul is saying, his autobiography here in the book of Galatians, with what we hear from Luke in the book of Acts, because these two time periods, they, they, they come together, they overlap. And so what we see in Galatians 9 through 11 is what Paul is talking about here, or Acts 9-11 is what Paul is talking about here in the last part of chapter 1 and the very first part of chapter 2. So uh, let's look at that. And you see there on your outline, the Apostle Paul, the early years. The Apostle Paul, the early years. Last week we talk about, talked about his life before his conversion. Now we're going to look at more directly his life after his conversion and and those years immediately after his conversion and and see the transformation in his life. And so the first thing we see in the the Apostle Paul in the early years is this. Uh, The first point there, sub-point there, is he was with the Lord in Arabia. So let me back up there and just read this text here. I want to start back in chapter 1, verse 15. Chapter 1, verse 15. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, 
in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now notice this. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. All right, so Paul, immediately after his conversion, he is there in Damascus. After he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he goes on to Damascus, and there the Lord sends to him Ananias. Ananias is a follower of the Lord. And the Lord comes to Ananias and says, Go to Damascus and enter such and such a house, and you're going to find Saul there, because he hadn't changed his name to Paul yet. You're going to find Saul there, and, and I want you to take this message to him, and I want you to tell him what he must suffer on my account. And Ananias said, well, Lord, wait a minute. I know Saul. This is the same Saul that, that everybody, were, they were laying their cloaks down at his feet as Stephen was being stoned to death. This, Lord, is the same Saul that, that came after the Christians. He was coming to Damascus to persecute Christians, to take Christians off to jail. This is, this is an enemy of the church. What do you mean, go into Saul? The Lord said, this is my chosen vessel. Go to him. And so Ananias goes to Saul, takes the message uh, that God had given him, that the Lord had given him to Saul, and then it says something like scales fell off of Saul's eyes because he had been blinded by this vision of the Lord. And something like scales fell off of his eyes. And as soon as those scales came off, what did Paul do? He went out and he began to preach the gospel of Jesus. He began to proclaim the gospel. Just like any new convert, he went out to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wanted other people to know the joy of the gospel. And so he went to the synagogues. He went out proclaiming the gospel. If you would, turn over with me to Acts chapter 9 and you just keep a f finger in Acts and Galatians this morning. Acts chapter 9. And I want to look at verses 19, the, the second half of, of verse 19 through 25. Then he rose and was baptized. Talking about Saul, this is after Ananias had came into him. Then he arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who call, those who call upon this name? And has he not come here? For this purpose, to bring them bound before chief priests. But Paul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by, by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And so here's Paul. He's proclaiming the name of Jesus. 
He's gaining strength. He's going through the synagogues. He's going through the streets proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God and that, and that Jesus is the Christ. Well, it doesn't take long for the Jews there to grow weary of Saul's preaching. So in verse 23, it says, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And so right here at the end of verse 25 is where Paul goes to Arabia. That's where we got to pick up in Galatians and see that he goes to Arabia. And apparently he spends two to three years there. The next verse in Galatians says after three years he goes to Jerusalem. Well, you see there in, in verse 26 of Acts, and when he had come to Jerusalem... See, so we have a two to three year time span that Paul is in Arabia. He stayed sometime in Damascus proclaiming Jesus was Christ. But then he got ran out of Damascus. The persecution got heavy. His life was in danger. So they sent him out of Damascus and he goes into Arabia. Now, what was he doing in Arabia? Well, we don't know for sure. Paul just says that he was in Arabia. He went out to Arabia. Uh, it doesn't tell us anywhere in Scripture what he was doing in Arabia. But I think we can kind of make a guesstimation here as to what he was doing in Arabia. I will say that the, the scholars are split on, on this, of, of what he was doing in Arabia. Some believe that he was just out in Arabia proclaiming the gospel, doing what Paul does. He was just taking the gospel from city to city out in Arabia. Well, now, if you look at Arabia out west of or east of Damascus, there's not much out there. Even today, it's pretty much desert. So he could have been taking the gospel, and I'm sure Paul was preaching the gospel uh, every time he'd come across someone. But others think Paul was in, in Arabia working out his theology. That's why I say in that, that point there, he was with the Lord in Arabia. Because I think that's what Paul was doing. Think about the life of Paul. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He, he knew the Old Testament Scripture. He had studied under the best teachers in Jerusalem the Old Testament Scripture. He had committed a lot of the Old Testament to memory. But now his life had been changed. Everything that he thought, all of his theology, everything that he thought the Old Testament was saying, now there's new light shed upon it. Now he sees it in light of Jesus Christ. Christ, so now he's got to kind of work through this and figure it out, work out his theology, make it more clear. And I think that's what Paul is saying in, in the passage. Remember, again, the thesis statement. Look there at verse 12 in Galatians 1. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He wasn't taught it. He wasn't taught by any man. The apostles didn't come down and teach him the gospel. How did he understand the fullness of the gospel? I mean, when you get to, to the book of, of Romans, I mean, that is the, some theologically heavy stuff there. How did Paul 
come to that point of understanding uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ to that point, I think he went to Arabia to be alone with the Lord. These were his years of, of wilderness wandering, if you will. He was walking with the Lord. He was uh, in communion with the Lord and working out his theology, getting his gospel right, making sure that what he was, was to proclaim was God's gospel. And so I think he was with the Lord in Arabia. So he was out in Arabia two to three years. He may have been about a year in Damascus and then a couple of years out in Arabia. But then it tells us that he comes down after three years. Now, after three years, uh, it would seem to be he's talking about uh, kind of the, the point of reference here is his conversions. Three years after his conversion, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother, and what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. So after his years in Arabia, now Paul comes back, and you pick up again there in Acts chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 26. He comes to Jerusalem. After this time, he comes to Jerusalem, and he spends a little while, just a, a few weeks there with Peter and James. Those are the apostles he is with. Now this is James, the Lord's brother. This is not the apostle James, the one who walked with Jesus, but James, the Lord's brother, was considered by the early church as an apostle. Uh, you can think of it as a, an apostle, little a, whereas Peter and uh, James, the brother of John, they were apostles, capital A, if you will. But James is an apostle, and, and Paul comes and he spends a little time with them, just a few weeks with them, talking about things. But he's not there with any length of time. And then what we see there in Acts chapter 9, uh, turn over there again, Acts chapter 9 and verse 29. So he went out, he had come to, to Peter and James, and then it says he went out in verse 28. So he went out in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed with the Hellenist but they were seeking to kill him. Boy, that was just a theme of Paul's life. He always had someone trying to kill him. They were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Tarsus is Cilicia. It's in the region of, of uh, Cilicia. Tarsus is Paul's hometown. That's where he was born. He's Saul of Tarsus. And so the apostles, they send, him to, they send him home. He goes up through Syria, on into Cilicia, to his hometown of Tarsus. What's, his, he, what's he doing in Tarsus? He's taking the gospel home. Paul takes the gospel home. He has been living outside of the gospel, but now he's met Jesus, and he knows his family and friends back home. This is a message they need to hear. And so he goes home and he takes the gospel to his family and friends back in Tarsus. Paul takes the gospel home. But then he brings an offering 
to Jerusalem. He brings an offering to Jerusalem. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation. I went up because of a revelation. Now, what's taking place here is actually what takes place in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 27. I'm not going to read all of that for you, but in, in Acts there, we see uh, after Paul goes to Tarsus, then the disciples hear about the outbreaking of the Lord, outbreaking of the gospel in a little town in northern Syria called Antioch. Antioch is mostly Gentiles. This is mostly a Gentile church, and, and they hear of this outbreak of the gospel. The Spirit is moving. There's a revival there in Antioch, and so they send up Barnabas to Antioch to, to go check things out and make sure everything is in line. And he gets there, and he sees all that's going on, all that the Spirit is doing in the life of the church, and so he says, I need help. And so he goes up to Tarsus to get Saul. and says, come on, Saul, I need your help. We need to come and, and get this church organized and, and get everything on track for this church. And so Saul comes down, Paul comes down to Antioch, and Barnabas and Paul are there in Antioch. They're ministering. And then Acts tells us that there was a prophet who came, a prophet who came with a revelation from the Lord. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so this is the time that Paul saying, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas because of this revelation, this prophecy that a famine was coming. And so Paul's primary objective to go to Jerusalem at this point is to take this offering, this love offering, from the disciples there in Antioch to the, the believers in Jerusalem to help them through this famine that was to come. And so Paul comes down, but while he is here, he wants to make sure he's on track. He wants to make sure, as Jason said a while ago, that he wasn't running in vain. And so that's where we pick up then in our, our message this morning. And this begins three ways, to, to, three ways the divine origin of Paul, God, Paul's gospel excuse me, was confirmed by God's community. Notice what it says there, chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles for this purpose in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. And so Paul is there with his offering, but he says, while I'm here, I'm going to set out the gospel that I've been proclaiming before the other apostles, before the church of God, to make sure I had not been running in vain. 
Now, I want you to see this, that the church then endorsed Paul's gospel theoretically. They endorsed Paul's gospel theoretically. Or excuse me, point one. I didn't say the point one, did I? Point one. The first reason that we can see that the, the divine origins of Paul's gospel is this. Paul's gospel gained ecclesiastical endorsement. Paul's gospel gained ecclesiastical endorsement. That's just to say he got the church's endorsement. He got the church's endorsement. And the church, they endorsed his gospel as God's gospel theoretically. Notice what he says there. I set before them. I set before them. Now that word there, to set before them, means to, to lay something out before someone for their consideration. Now, coming up here shortly is the, the Warren's Pink Tomato Festival, Bradley County's Pink Tomato Festival. We'll be going up to that. And, and so at the Pink Tomato Festival, they typically have this quilting competition. And, and so people who quilt, they bring their, their best quilts, they bring it to the competition, and they, they don't leave them folded up on a rack, right? They lay them out. They lay them out so that all of the judges can see all of every aspect of their quilt. Look at the whole quilt and judge it. That's what Paul says he did. He laid it out. He set it before them. He laid out the whole gospel, the whole message, all of his theology, everything that he had been preaching and proclaiming. He laid it out before the church there in Jerusalem. He laid it out before Peter and James and, and John and all of the others who were there at the church. He laid it out before them. And notice what he laid out. He laid out that which I proclaim among the Gentiles. That which I proclaim. Now that word there, proclaim, is the, the Greek word, keruso. Uh, keruso. Now that's a word that, that has a great deal of meaning in it. Keruso means to herald. It means to herald. To herald a message. Now, take that in, in noun form. You think of a herald. What does a herald do? A herald doesn't proclaim his own message. A herald proclaims a message from the king. That's what a herald does. He's been given a message by someone in authority, and, and their mindset it, it would have been a king. A herald was someone who was appointed by the king to take a message to someone else. And Paul says, that's what I laid out before them, the message that I was heralding. The message that the king of kings gave me and I was proclaiming. It wasn't my message, it's God's message. It's the king's message. I was just simply heralding it. Paul says, I laid out the message, the gospel, the good news that I heralded from God and notice his purpose his purpose for laying it all out in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain he wanted to make sure that what he was preaching what he had been proclaiming was not in any any way in error he wanted to make sure that the church checked his theology confirmed his theology Paul wasn't doing theology alone, but he was bringing his theology to the church. I want us to understand this. Theological inquiry 
is not a solo sport. Theological inquiry is not a solo sport. That's what Paul is teaching us here. He's, not, he's saying, I, I didn't just do this on my own, but hey, yes, I received it on my own from the Lord, but then I took it to the church. I laid it out before the church. The, the, theological inquiry is not a solo sport. You know, there's some sports that, that you just can't play solo. You've you got to be a team. There's, they're team sports. If you take baseball or softball, you can go out and you can practice certain elements of it. You can go to the batting cages and practice your batting. You can get out there in the yard with a, a bucket full of, of baseballs and throw them at a tire and practice throwing. But you can't play solo. You just can't. You've got to have a team. Well, theological inquiry, how we do theology, how we, we talk about God, how we discover what we think about God, we do it from Scripture, but we also must do it in community. You see, friend, there's a great danger when we take our theology, take our learning, and go into a closet by ourselves and just stay there and let it develop. You know, most of the, the cults that are in, in existence today, they came from some man, some woman, going off by themselves, developing their theology away from the, the scrutiny of Orthodox Christianity, and they come up with this new idea, this new cult that leads people away from the true gospel. You see, friends, we can never do our theological inquiry. We can never learn outside of the church. We're to always to bring it back into the community of believers. Oh, yeah, we, we go in our quiet time and we read Scripture. We see what Scripture says. We get some thoughts about Scripture. But we better not stay there. We better bring it back to the church and see, what does the church say? What does the church throughout history say about this? Well, I do this in my own studies. I do this in my own studies. Even when I develop sermons, even when I prepare my sermons, I, I'm, I don't do theology by myself. I don't do theology solo. Right? I, I go into my closet, I read the scripture, I read the text, I read it, read it, read it, read it, read it. I begin to pull out all that I can pull out from it, just dividing it up as much as I can and just get all the truth out of it. And, and I begin, I develop my sermon, I lay it all out there. But I don't stop there. I, I go to commentaries. I go to other Christians, other godly men who, who have studied this text. I say, okay, what are they saying about this? Because I don't want to be in error. If I'm way off of what everyone else in Christianity is saying about this text, then uh, I'm probably the one who needs to change what I'm saying, right? We should never do theology alone. Not finally. Right? We need to bring it into the body of believers. Just as Paul brought his theology into community, we must bring our theology to the church. Theological inquiry must take place in the church. So they endorsed it theoretically. In other words, he laid it out for them. Here's the message. Yes, Paul, you're doing right. Yes, this is the true gospel. This is the one gospel. This is the same gospel that the Lord Jesus gave us, the apostles say. 
And so you are on track. You are not running in vain. So they endorse it theoretically, but they also endorsed it practically. They endorsed it practically. Notice there in, in verse 3. Verse 3, it picks up. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. In other words, they approve theoretically, in theory. Yes, Paul, this is the right message. But then Paul goes on to say, and they even approved it practically. They put what they said into practice. Yes, it's salvation by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. Yes, it's all about Jesus apart from the law. And no, we are not going to require Titus to be circumcised, to come under the law. They put their faith in practice, right? And they put the theology, the, the theory of the gospel, the theology of the gospel into practice. They didn't just leave it on a board. They just didn't leave it in a book, but they brought it into real life and they put it into practice. And that's one of the big problems in Galatians. These, these Judaizers, they were trying to bring people under the law. It's Jesus plus the law. But Paul says, but no. I laid out my gospel before the other apostles. That it's salvation through, Christ, through faith alone, by, God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. And they approved it. They endorsed it in practice. They did not require Titus to be circumcised. You know, when we, theological endorsement minus practical endorsement equals what? Hypocrisy. Think about that. Let it sit. Theoretical endorsement minus the practical endorsement equals hypocrisy. We say we believe this, but here's how we act. That's hypocrisy. We say we believe this, but we don't act like we believe that. Hypocrisy. I wonder how many things in Scripture do we look at and, and say, oh yes, I believe that. That's what Scripture says. Yes, that's God's Word. But we go out and practice something else. Let me ask you, dear friend, how many people do you know, maybe you are one, who, who say, yes, I believe we should have no other gods before the Lord our God. Yet, you go out and you take your kids out of church and you take them to the ball field on Sunday and let them play ball. That's hypocrisy. That's theoretical minus the practical. And we see it all the time. This new ball field that they've built down in Sterlington, a, a friend of mine asked them what they have planned. They have ball games every Sunday from now throughout all summer. So that half of that ball field, I would, I would bet you money if I were a gambler, but I'm a Baptist, I can't gamble, right? But I would bet you money that half of the people there will be professing Christians. 
And they're going to be out of church taking their children, and what are they teaching them? Are they teaching them, you shall have no other gods before me? No, they're teaching them baseball is God more than, than Yahweh, more than Jesus. Baseball is more important than Jesus. That's what they're teaching. That's theory minus practical. How many people do we see today that we say, yes, I believe the Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery. But yet, when it comes to premarital sex, they say, oh, well, boys will be boys and girls will be girls. Or how many will give in to, the, to cohabitation and say, well, that's just the way of the world these days. Exactly, that's the way of the world. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. Oh, Christians, we cannot approve of such. Cohabitation, sex before marriage, is a sin before God. It's forgiven through the, the grace of Jesus Christ, but it is a sin. And we cannot give our approval to such. To do such would be hypocrisy. How many other things? How many other things do we say, oh yeah, I believe the Bible says this, but I'm going to do this instead. 1st century church, they said, we believe this. And we're going to act like we believe. We're going to do this. Oh, that that would be said of us. That we would truly live. Like we believe in Jesus. Not just say it. But live it. Words mean nothing without action. So as we think about Paul's gospel, Paul's gospel was indeed endorsed by the church. He laid it out before them, and they said, Yes, Paul, you're on track. It was endorsed. This is God's gospel. This is not from the imagination of Paul. This is God's gospel. So dear church, I want us to see this today. I want us to understand that we can trust the book of Galatians. We can trust the message that Paul will be presenting to us throughout the rest of the book of Galatians, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can trust that. We can trust the gospel that's presented throughout all of Paul's writings. We can trust the gospel that's presented throughout all of Scripture because this whole book is inspired and errant. It is carries the full authority of God. This is God's book, not man's book. It was written through men by God. We can trust this gospel because the church throughout history, they have endorsed, they have confirmed the divine nature of this book. Church, we can believe God's word. We can take him at his word. We can trust in that. And let us not just trust that in theory. Let us trust God in practice how we live our lives.
Now for some here today, there's some here, you've never trusted in Jesus. Maybe you came here and you have questions about the Bible. Maybe, maybe you hear what the secular world has to say about the Bible. Oh, it's just an ancient book written by men. There's no divine nature to it. Let me tell you, the evidence points to the fact that this book was written by God through the instrument of humans, through the instrument of men, but it was written by God. And the message that it proclaims, you can trust it's a message from God. And the core of the message is that while you are yet a sinner, while you are yet living in disobedience to God, while you were living away from God, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you. To pay a penalty for your sin, your rebellion that you could never pay. Jesus died for your sin. And he was raised again to assure you that you can have salvation in him. You can have eternal life in him. You'll only trust him. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your rebellion and turn to Jesus. Trust in him. And all your sin can be covered by the blood of Jesus. Do you trust him? Oh, Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for your message. We thank you, though you transcend so far above us, Lord. You, you didn't have to speak to us, but Lord, you came down and you spoke to us. You gave us your word. Your word to cling to, to trust in, to see Jesus through. Not only that, you gave us your word who became flesh, Jesus Christ. To view his life, to see his sacrifice, and to see his kingly authority today as the resurrected King of kings, Lord of lords. Oh, Father, let us be faithful to your word. Let us read it. Let us let it examine our own hearts and point out the hypocrisy in our lives. We all, we all have hypocrisy within us, but Lord, point it out. Show us. Change us through the power of your word, the power of your spirit. These things I pray in Christ's name. Amen.